Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is Kate Moss, the internationally renowned best-selling author of eight novels and short story collections, including the phenomenally successful Long Doc trilogy, several non-fiction books, and most recently, The Burning Chambers, which came out in paperback earlier this year. Kate is also the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction, which she set up in 1996 in response to an all-male Booker Prize shortlist. It's now one of the most prestigious writing awards in the UK, and this year's winners are due to be announced on Wednesday the 5th of June. So Kate, welcome. Thank you so much for coming along today. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to be here. So 23 years of the Women's Prize for Fiction. (laughs) Man and boy. That's that's the way my mother-in-law would put it. It's been through many incarnations, the Orange Prize for Fiction, the Baileys Women's Prize for Fiction, and now you've been awarded charitable status, which is fantastic. Did you expect it to last this long? (laughs) Well, I think the thing is, for all of us, when we're setting up, whether it's a literary prize or it's a a podcast, whatever it is, you're not thinking of the, you're not looking to the horizon, Mm. if you like. What you're thinking about is the issue at the time. And can you do something about it? Because in the end, there are two ways of reacting to anything in this world. One is to sit around and moan, and the other is to do something. So for us, setting up the Women's Prize for Fiction, It was in reaction to an all-male shortlist for the Booker Prize. And the thing is that that's okay, because the judges have the right to choose the books that they value the most. Mm. That's the point of being a judge of a literary prize. The point was that nobody noticed it was all male. I see. Until it was out in the press. Right. And a lot of people, men and women, working in publishing, in bookselling, agenting, all of us said, can you imagine? if it had been an all-female list. There would have been an upcry. It would have been, oh, right. this is all deliberate and, you know, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so actually that just sent us off as literary detectives. Mm. Why had that happened? Why had nobody noticed that it was all male? Mm. What was the ratio of male-to-female books published? What were the ratio of male-to-female books on literary awards? And a group of people met to say, does it matter? And if it matters, why does it matter? And if we think prizes matter, then should we be doing something about it? Mm. So everything about it was in the spirit of curiosity. So if you had said that 23 years later um, we'd be here and the Women's Prize of Fiction would be the biggest annual celebration of women's writing anywhere in the world, and it still has this enormous pedigree of bringing out voices from completely different parts of the globe, different Mm. sorts of stories, I would have laughed. I would have absolutely laughed. But it's always we're setting something up. It's about the small steps And then when you look back over all the years, you see what's been achieved. And it's lots of people have achieved that. It's it's absolutely not just me. So when it it was first launched, there was a degree of controversy. Uh, It was described as sexist and it received some criticism from various quarters, including Germaine Greer. Did that make your resolve waver at all or did it strengthen it? No, it it didn't make our resolve uh, waver in any way whatsoever because actually the figures speak for themselves. Mm. And it was very straightforward. When we did the research um, around that time about the 
the idea of setting up a prize that would celebrate and honour women's writing. And that's what it's about for men and women readers, celebrating and honouring women's achievements. Uh, it was very straightforward that 60% of novels in that, in that year when we were doing the research were published by women. Mm. So there was no barrier to getting published. Yeah. Some 75% of novels bought were bought by women. Mm. But yet, fewer than 9% of books shortlisted for any of the literary awards, the major literary awards, were by women. So however you look at it, there was a problem. Yeah. You know, there was just a straightforward numbers problem, if you like. So when there was criticism, I'm afraid there's always criticism for, about women supporting other women. Um, but if any, if we listen to all the criticism, if you have a resolve, you just have to carry on. If you think it's the right thing to do, you need to do it. And now the history of the prize speaks for itself in that millions of readers, men and women, have read outstanding fiction by women from all over the world because of the prize. Mm. And that's what we did. We just wanted to make sure that exceptional women's voices got out to as wide a range of readers as possible. And it does what it says on the tin. As you said, the prize, the success of the prize speaks for itself. Do you think uh, in terms of the equality issue in, in publishing more broadly, things have improved? I, I read recently there was a study which said uh, women's books were priced 45% lower than, than men's, which was really shocking. Uh, have things improved and, and, and where are we now in that, in that state? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting um, issue, the question of pricing, because I, I, I'm, I'm not aware of that. And, mm. and it would be quite interesting to see what the nature of the books and men and women, because there are a lot of books published by women and it might be there's an awful lot of debuts and debut novels mm. are always priced lower. So I, I don't really want to uh, speculate about that particular mm. side of things. What I think has changed, I was a publisher back in the day um, and I think that what is really healthy and fantastic at the moment is that things that should have been addressed, both in terms of who works in publishing and who gets published, about uh, writers of colour, mm. about writers of different classes, about writers from different uh, cultural areas, um, the sense that what we want is not to narrow things down, yeah. but if you like, just get a bigger table, mm. get more people to the to the table, mm. because we are all richer if we hear from a wider range of people. You know, we don't only want to hear uh, people like ourselves mm. telling the same old stories. Mm. And so when I was in publishing, it was a very, very narrow band of people who worked in publishing and quite a narrow band of people that got published. And I think now it's been slow coming but there are debates about where are the writers of colour? Mm. Why are there so few coming through? What's happening in the YA market? What about class? This is a very big and live debate mm. now. Um, and I think this is fantastic. And mm. it is long overdue, but I think the publishing com industry is finally thinking, well, realising what we all know. Mm. The more, the merrier. It's always mm. the more, the merrier. You know, you, ju you just learn more when you read from somebody whose experiences are completely different from yours. Yeah, and you reach new markets as well. I mean, representation, it doesn't just matter, it matters for the bottom bottom line. It, exactly. And the thing is that that's always so funny about this. There's always this idea, and this is the foundation of the prize, and certainly what I do as a writer myself, is the idea that there is such a thing as a neutral voice of literature with a capital L. Mm. And actually, when you unpick that, what actually is being said there is... Uh, white men of a certain age. Yeah. And of course, that goes back to the books that, I mean, you are rather younger than me, but the books that we studied at school, what the mm. idea of the literary canon was very, very narrow. Mm, totally. And those things so, you know, perpetuate. So they go on and they go on. So the idea that literature, men writing about men 
is for everybody, but women writing about women is just for women. Mm. And that word just, that mm. sneaky little, nasty little word mm. just comes in. Whereas, of course, the truth is that all of us as writers are writing for readers who would enjoy our stories. Mm. It's as simple as that. I'm not writing for women or for men, but I am writing stories, untold stories of women. And the Women's Prize says, ignore who wrote this book, read these stories. It doesn't matter who you are. You bring your own self as a reader to the book, but these are exceptional artists. Mm. Read them. And so that's really what the Women's Prize tries to do, is say, let's broaden out the canon. Let's you know, change the definition of literature with capital L. And it's what publishing is now trying to do in terms of ethnicity and disability and sexualities and class and all of these things. Just broaden it out a bit more, and I, I think we'll all be the richer for it. So what makes a winner? Because there have been so many <laughs> strong books by women out in the past. Yeah, I mean, just so many. Uh, as hopefully as highlighted on this podcast. Um, what makes a winner in your eyes? Well, I'm not a judge. I judged in the first year when we felt we couldn't ask anybody else to put their head above the parapet. <laughs> <laughs> and I dodged a few missiles at the time and it was it was all fine. So um, every year we have a judging panel of five women, five exceptional women. And there is a chair, but they're all equal. Uh, each of their voices counts for the same amount, if you, if you like. So every year... Um, it is those five women in the room decide what is their winner. Mm. And of course, we all know this about judging, that if it was a different group of judges, they might make a different choice. There is no such thing as a best book. Mm. There is only the book that those people on the day love the most. So what I say, though, when I get into the room um, and you know welcome everybody for the first time, the judges, I say, just think of it in these terms. If you're sitting next to somebody on a bus or at dinner or wherever it is, and you have read this incredible book, mm. the sort of book that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up on end, and you want to press it into her hands mm. or his hands. Just ask yourself that. Yeah. That's that's all it is. And we have a sort of kind of a mantra about excellence, originality, and accessibility. But really, that's just a way of guide, guiding the judges. And I also say, you know, is this a book for now? Mm. And that doesn't mean it needs to be set now. You know, I'm a writer of historical fiction, and mm. I think quite often the reason historical fiction is so popular is that it shines a mirror to our emotions now, but with the safety and the hindsight of the past. Mm. So question about whether a book is for now is more about does it resonate? Does it stay with you when you've shut the last page? And it's a very interesting thing when you're judging. I've obviously judged lots of other prizes in my, my time now. Uh, is that even if you read a lot, there are some books that stay with you. Mm. doesn't matter if you read them number two in your batch of 170 or 170. There are some books that just sneak under your skin. Mm. And that's really what judging is about. It's, is this book bigger than just the moment of reading it? And there's been some fantastic uh, recent winners, Camilla Shamsi's Home Fires, uh, Ali Smith's How to Be Both, uh, and so many others as well. So uh, really fantastic. If you're looking for a recommendation, it's it's a good place to go. It to is. Sort of it, where the go-to the pride. Yeah. Catalog. Um, the um, can I ask a little bit about you and your work? You've got uh, the Burning Chambers, as I said, has just uh, recently come out in paperback. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and why you decided to write it. Well, all of my um, historical fiction really are love letters to Carcassonne. Mm. Uh, to the southwest of France, to Languedoc, uh, where we first stumbled about 30 years ago. And I fell in love with the region. I fell in love with the light, the texture of the air. Mm. Um, and 
for me as a writer, I suppose my biggest character is always landscape. And yeah. it goes right back to, you know, like many, many girls as I was then, um, falling in love with Wuthering Heights. Yes, which you has know, got it, such a strong sense of place. Such a strong sense yeah. of place. And, it, and also understanding as I became a writer that the thing about Wuthering Heights and what I try to do in my own fiction and the Burning, Burning Chambers in particular is that you could not pick a story up and just put it somewhere else. That the landscape and the history of that place is integral to the storytelling. Mm. So for me, when I'm in Carcassonne and Toulouse, the southwest of France, I have that sort of whispering of the past in my ears. Mm. It's that moment when you kind of feel a character come and touch you on the shoulder. It sounds so daft when you say it like that, but it is what it feels like for me. So it's being in the landscape, it's knowing the history, and beyond that, it's that sense of, I'm writing about the me of then. None of the characters I write are me at all in terms of my character, but most of history is written not only by the victors, but it is written with an agenda. Yeah. And most women are left out of that. You know, when you're writing about the 16th century, we were there too. Yeah. Women were there too. And we were normal. Mm. Normal people living their lives, wanting to get on with it. The only women that appear in that period of history, really, are queens mm. and princesses. Totally. And of course, king, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So there's some fantastic writing about the 16th century court, you know, whether it's a Mary, um, you know, sort of Catherine de Medici, or whether it's Queen Elizabeth or Mary Queen of Scots. This is great, wonderful writing. But for me, historical fiction is about standing in other people's shoes. It's writing the untold stories of women mm. um, who were living and running the bookshops and running the towns because the men were away at war. Mm. But you could be forgiven mm. for thinking we weren't there at all. So everything about my fiction, it's adventure writing, it's mystery, it's a Romeo and Juliet story, one Catholic family, one Protestant family. It's, you know, it's fast paced, it's, it's a thriller. I'm not writing history, I'm writing stories. Mm. But beyond all of that, it's, what about us? Let's, let's hear from the women who were there too. In ma my characters are imaginary, but they're set against the backdrop of real history. And for me, that bubble, you know, that laboratory of writing is Carcassonne, and it's the southwest of France. So before you started writing books yourself, you worked in publishing and you were very successful, but you swapped swapped it for writing when you were offered a promotion. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> well, I uh, yes, I did. I mean, that sounds more thought out than it actually was, you know, <laughs> like with many of these things. I think, um, for, you know, I'm a parent and I have um, a daughter and a son. My daughter's 29 and my son's 26. And so I remember... Um, you know, I have before me the remembrance of what I was like, you know, mm. when I was a bit younger, um, all of those sorts of things. And I think that for for some people are terribly planned in their careers. They know what they want to do. They study it. You know, doctors, let's use doctors mm. as an example. You've got to do those A-levels and you've got to go to doctoring school and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. I think for those of us who are interested in slightly more nebulous areas, you know, really what I wanted to be was a reader. Mm. And the idea that maybe I could be paid to read, this seemed great. Um, and so, of course, I went into publishing with a slightly mistaken view that I would just sit around you know, <laughs> eating chocolates on a sofa all day and reading books. And you'll be astonished to know that isn't quite how publishing went. But it was a wonderful environment. And it, I stumbled into a first job in publishing um, because in those days everybody had secretaries and I had been trained to do shorthand and typing. Uh, so I just went to, you know, an employment agency and they sent me to a publisher. Mm. And so I didn't intend to be a publisher. I didn't know what I wanted to be. But then I loved it. Um, 
But I was offered a, a, a really good job and it made me think, really for the first time I sort of stood back and I thought, do you want to be a publisher? Do you want to run a publishing company? Do you want to be a woman of business looking after artists? And when I asked myself the question kind of directly, I mm. thought, actually, no, I want to be the artist. So I jumped ship. And it's that moment of, um, you know, there's a wonderful comment from uh, Julian Margaret Cameron, which is leap and the net will find you. And it's a scary idea of just going, actually, I'm going to give up the salary and just try and go it alone. But every now and again, we all have to ask ourselves that question. Mm. And it was it was really tough doing that, you know, not having you know, a job and a salary and all of those things and a little child at the time and another one about to arrive. But it coincided with setting up the Women's Prize. Mm. And so it was just one of those moments where I just knew that I, if I would regret getting tied in to a proper job for the rest of time, that I needed to be brave enough to go, actually, no, I want something else for myself. And, well, you know, you have ups and downs as a writer. Mm. I've been in the last, you know, from my mid-40s onwards, really lucky. Yeah. Um, so it's easy for me to say now that it was the right decision. Sometimes it really didn't feel like the right decision. Um, but I think it's the only advice I would ever give to any young people, not least of all my own, my own guys, which is try and find something to spend your days where you don't notice the time passing. That's great advice. And that's, for me, writing is that. And, you know, coming in and chatting to you is that. Um, and, and and I think it's that because we only get one go. We only get one go. So enjoy your days if you possibly can. Don't spend your time dreaming of a time when it will all be different. And that moment in publishing, I suddenly thought I will regret. However well I do in publishing, I will always look back to this moment of choice and think, but what if I, what if, what if I'd been brave enough to have a go at being a writer and I bottled that chance? So, you know, here we are. I'm still awake, still <laughs> writing um, and loving it, you know, loving, loving doing that sort of thing. And The Burning Chambers is a book that I adored writing and I still feel I can't really believe that is my job, mm. you know, and I'm nearer 60 now than 30 when I made that decision. <laughs> Uh, as you mentioned, you've been phenomenally successful, uh, and I think you mentioned that. I don't think yeah, I would ever well, say I'm. No, was no, phenomenal. no. So I'm interpreting. You said <laughs> lucky, but, but lucky, I, yes. sure, I think you made your own luck by, <laughs> by being brilliant. But um, you had several books out when Labyrinth, the first of the Languedoc uh, trilogy, was published, uh, and then that became this huge phenomenon. Uh, it was 2005, I yeah. think. Uh, became a number one bestseller internationally, sold millions of copies, won awards. It was adapted for screen. What was it like achieving that level of success? Was it pure, purely wonderful, or was it a shock in its own way? Well, that is a lovely way of putting that question. Actually, um, it was really wonderful. It was also utterly unbelievable, um, you know, and th this is obviously not in any way equivalent, but I was reminded watching wonderful Olivia Coleman just, you know, standing up there where she won the Oscars saying, this is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and my this is hilarious is rather much less glamorous, but it was standing in a, the gigantic Tesco's in Bognor Regis in mm. Sussex and seeing Labyrinth on the shelf in Tesco's at number one yeah. and thinking, this is hilarious. You know, I mean, it just seemed so extraordinary. Because when I was writing it, I just had this sense of 
this is the story. This is the story that mm. I've got to tell. I've not had that feeling again since until the burning chambers. Mm. Um, and when that went to number one and it was out there, I, I felt the same sense of, oh, I can't believe it's happened, you know, you know. and it, it's that wonder when you love a book mm. and you really want people to read it. But at the same time, with Labyrinth, I didn't really think anybody but my husband and some friends and my mum was going to read it. Mm. So that first of all, it's it went into the chart at number 10. And I thought, well, that's it now. I have achieved everything I ever hoped. Mm. And for me, being number 10 in the book chart was a dream. And then next week it was number eight. And then, you know, and it, you know, it, it sort of clawed its way up the ladder. So oddly, I felt, I didn't feel it when it was selling millions of copies. The moment that felt unreal was the very first week in hardback when it had sold about 2,000 copies. But it was there mm. and it was visible. And the reason I say luck is, I, you know, I work hard, obviously. Um, but I think it's very important um, in the world of theatre, the world of playwriting, the world of film, the world of music, the world of books, that there is always that need for a fair wind behind you. Mm. So there are lots of brilliant books that don't get that moment of luck. And I had that moment of luck. And for me, it was being on the Richard and Judy show, mm. actually. And you're not there. Um, that's the weirdest thing. And I remember very clearly sitting in my sitting room at home with my children who I can't even remember what ages but they were children children sitting one holding one hand and one holding the other hand watching the television not knowing what they're going to say and my mum and dad in their village in Sussex had gone around the entire village and there were there really were signs all over the pictures the person was going <laughs> Barbara and Richard's daughter on the television tomorrow and I thought oh my god if they hate the book the whole of the village is going to be oh dear that was a bit of a you know and so you because you have no idea and then there was this lovely moment when they showed the film and then the experts in the studio are going to talk about it and they just all loved it and the next day the book sold 57,000 copies wow and you just and that is luck because mm. the book would have been the same book. But I was picked for a big book club and it made all the difference. And because of that, um, I didn't ever have to get a job. I could carry on. I could be a full-time writer. So I didn't become a full-time writer till I was, you know, 46. Um, and I think that made a big difference in terms of how I felt about it. Mm. That I was a middle-aged woman mm. with family and life was, you know, my life was pretty settled. Mm. So I just saw it as this moment of great joy rather than um, something that I'd worked towards or expected. And I think with writing, always try and hang on to the joy of it. Because some books will go better than others. Some days of writing will go better than others. But if you just keep the bigger picture, are you happy doing this? It means that even if the outside world doesn't like it quite as much as you hoped, you don't lose faith in the work itself. Mm. You still enjoy the writing of it, even if the reception of it wasn't quite what you hoped for. Um, and I think we all need to hang on to all the joy we can get, particularly at the moment, actually. Can I ask about your name? Because obviously you have a quite famous namesake, uh, and I know there have been a few moments of confusion. <laughs> can you tell me about that? There are no moments of confusion when people see me. This is the only thing I would say. I'm a lot shorter and rather older. Um, it is it is hilarious, obviously, being called Kate Moss. I have an E on my uh, name, and obviously... I've been around for quite a while before the other Kate Moss was famous. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
But there are two things about it. Firstly, it can be very funny. So my agent in America always gets few, you know, grumpy with me when I tell this story, but it is very funny. Being in New York, uh, going for dinner with my agent, um, we went to a restaurant that apparently was very hard to get in. I never know these things, but it's you know, one of those restaurants in New York <laughs> where you have to you know, know somebody or kill somebody in order to be allowed in. And as we got there, we could see loads of photographers outside. And, and we in innocently were going, oh, I wonder who's in. <laughs> and we go in and my agent said, uh, yes, we've got a reservation for George Lucas and Kate Moss. <laughs> and they look at us and they look horrified. And it's entirely clear that someone within the restaurant has tipped off the press and they think it's that George Lucas and that Kate Moss. <laughs> Whereas in fact it is us. And we sit there and we have a lovely table and lovely, you know, and nobody really says anything. And it's, but she, I admire her. I think she's a really amazing woman. She's done incredible things. She lives her life. She's herself. Mm. I'm sharing a name with somebody who's great. You know, you could be sharing a name with someone you really didn't want to share a name with. Yeah. So, you know, so it's um, it's fine. And also, I think one of my highlights was um, I can't remember. It probably was was it the Burning Chambers? I can't remember what either the Burning Chambers or Labyrinth. One of my big books, I suppose. I mean, and I mean that in terms of the number of pages in them. Um, and there was a cartoon in the, in one of the Sunday newspapers with the other Kate Moss in the back of a taxi, and the punchline was my wife loves your books so, <laughs> and they bought it for me and that was a lovely oh, thing that's to have so um, and am I right in, in thinking your husband took your surname when you married yes I love well that. in fact not even when we married when we decided to have children he changed his name to mine and um, and that's it, it, again it's so interesting about the way you know this is what I do as a, a writer is investigate how history is made mm. and it's a very interesting thing about the name change which is People uh, want it to be for a political reason or a statement reason or whatever, whereas actually it was an emotional reason, mm. which is that I loved my parents very much. We were a very close family. My parents' surname is Moss. Mm. They're both sadly now gone. Uh, I didn't want to not have that name, and I didn't want my children to not have that name. Mm. My husband didn't have any particular affection for his name and his wonderful mother, who is still with us and, and that's fantastic, lives with us, um, had married again, so didn't have the name either. Mm. So it was a, an emotional thing of with whom do you want to be identified? So actually the, the thing that was sweet is my husband did ask my dad's permission if he could change oh. his name. And my dad was actually thrilled and he was a very traditional man, my dad. And uh, so it was very funny that he embraced this sort of sign of feminism so immediately you know normally with the war <laughs> but in fact he was completely the opposite and um and it's just that it, it means a lot to me i'm really proud of the people my parents were uh we my husband and i met at school we all grew up in the same area in sussex um people remember my parents and i want to visibly be seen as their daughter hmm. and i didn't want to lose that and my husband actually felt the same you know, because he'd known my parents all of his life as well, actually. So, you know, that's why we did it. And it's lovely to have a family name. I think for a lot of women, it's complicated if they keep their professional names, but their children have different names from them. Or you put the names together and everybody's name gets enormous. Um, but for us, it was quite straightforward. It's just we had an emotional connection with, with Moss, with an E. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a little bit about your childhood? I mean, it's clear that you have always loved 
books you said you had this vision of this job where you could read uh for a living um uh, when when did that emerge were you were you brought up surrounded by books um i there were always books about the place yes mm. and it's why i am um so involved in the campaign to make sure that there's a library in every town or in schools and mm. all of those things because it is absolutely essential every single child whoever they are can travel the world in the pages of a book yeah and we need to make sure that every single child has the opportunity to do that regardless of their circumstances and I was very lucky in that you know my parents had books about the place a lot of the books were readers digest <laughs> and you know they would arrive and there'd be a package and, and and that was absolutely fantastic and books from you know my parents past and my dad and mum read to us a bedtime story every night. Mm. So they, it was just part of things in the same way that, you know, having tea at quarter past five was part of things mm. and having a bath on a Sunday or whatever it was, you know. Um, and so it was never something that I thought about. I just, they were just books. Mm. And it's oddly, it's only when you get to be grown up and you get to be a writer and people ask you about these things, you look back on it and think, yes, actually, that's that was a wonderful thing. But it's just what it was mm. and we have my sisters and I have all of our childhood books and we kind of divvied them up when my parents um, died and it was just very interesting that we have different ones so I really liked the Alison Utley little grey rabbit books one of my sisters loved the Anton B books you know it's all of this sort of thing and we have different memories of the same stories and I remember as a parent being absolutely devastated when my own children who love reading didn't need me to read to them anymore mm. you know then they suddenly were independent readers and they were like no it's fine mum and I really I'm really bad at doing voices but I love doing the voices and you know I <laughs> love that moment in the evening doing this sort of funny accents all the rest of it and suddenly they're reading on their own and I and of course I then went back and asked my parents I said did you miss that and of course because my sisters were younger than me they were carrying on doing it so it you know it wasn't to do with that so always had books around and my mum told me that I always, you know, was writing stories. Mm. I don't have that memory of myself. How fascinating. But she said, you're always writing stories. And then when I became a writer and I was doing an event, a Burning Chambers event, a couple of women now, uh, girls I was at school with, you know, my big comprehensive school, there were a lot of girls and two, two now middle-aged women like me came up and said, oh, you, were, you know, I don't know if you remember us and we were at school with you. And we had a lovely chat, and, and then one of them said, don't you remember that play you wrote in the third year when you made us all make our own costumes from silver foil? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I don't remember that play, and I think that's probably quite good. That play has lost to posterity. But it's so interesting because it's, as a storyteller and a, a novelist telling women's stories and the stories of women and girls that don't make it into the history books, just so interesting to be brought face to face with the fact that I have already m written a history of my own childhood, which mm -hmm. isn't entirely accurate. And can I ask what you're like as a, a writer? Do you are you a big planner? Are you do you have any strange snacks or <laughs> rituals? Uh, are you easily distracted? What are you? What's your process? I am uh, not easily distracted. No, I'm I'm very That's disciplined um, as a writer. Um, at the beginning of a book, so when I do all the research and I travel and I, I 
the research belongs in two places for me. It belongs in my feet and it belongs in my head. Mm. And the head research is libraries, archives, museums, all of that. So with the burning chambers, the French wars of religion, when did they start? When did they finish? What were the key pointed issue? Which countries am I going to go to? It's a refugee story. Mm. It's a Romeo and Juliet story. So, you know, all of that research. Could Catholics and Protestants marry in France? You know, all of this. So you do all of that. And then also I do the foot research. So I'm in Carcassonne, I'm in Toulouse. It's a sequence of four books. The Burning Chambers is the first of a quartet. And it starts in a graveyard in 1862 with a girl in Franschuk in South Africa mm. rubbing the lichen off a grave to see whether the story that she's been told of her family, 300 years of story, is true. Mm. Is the name she expects to see there going to be there on that gravestone? So. I've been in that graveyard. I've mm. looked up at those mountains. You know, I do all of that sort of stuff. But then beyond that, it's about the story because I'm a storyteller, not a historian. So I let it all kind of marinate around. Um, and then I always go away somewhere completely neutral for about five or six days to what I call deep dive. So that day when I've got nobody to distract me, no dog to feed, no granny to chat to, no husband and friends and lovely things, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be lonely and bored. So I will have no choice but to start this book. And I always go to a hotel and I just sit there and I do five or six days of deep diving into the novel and I just write. I don't think about it. I just see, OK, who are the people that are going to come and play with me in mm. this book? Who are the characters going to be? And in The Burning Chambers, Minu, my lead character, appeared pretty much straight away. Mm. I knew the sort of person I needed, but she herself, standing in front of me, happened really quickly. Then once I've done that, I can write anywhere. I'm lucky enough to have a study at home in Sussex, and we have the same little house in Cuckasson, and I go there maybe five days a month um, just, just to reconnect with that landscape. But I get up very, very early, and I start maybe half past four or five in the morning. Mm. I write for maybe eight hours a day, um, seven days a week. Mm. I don't stop. The first draft is just getting it down on paper. And then I take a deep breath, <laughs> and then I start the editing. And that's when the real work begins. And the editing is saying things like, OK, this character, do you know what? Doesn't She doesn't work. She's right. just not very interesting. She's not doing the thing. This chapter's great, but it doesn't belong there. Mm. And that's quite weird. I wasn't expecting that storyline to come in, but now it has. Do I want to develop that and take this one away? So I always think of it like um, building a house. Mm. You build the house, but you've got to then start living in it to know whether you want to paint that room pink or blue and whether you want the kitchen there at the front of the house or at the back. Mm. And that's what it feels like for me. The first draft is building the house and then the editing and the second and the third draft is about decorating it and making it look like your house. Mm. Um, and so... I love doing it. You know, you can you can tell, I hope. And once the story once the character's there and the story's kind of you know, bouncing along on its own, it's just a question of keeping at it and not getting discouraged. If there's anybody listening who is writing, um, the thing is that we all, it doesn't matter whether we're published or not, we all feel the same. Yeah. There's always a soggy bit in the middle. There's always a bit when you think, Oh no, this book is terrible, it doesn't work, the characters are boring, I don't know what I'm doing. The only thing is to keep going. Till you've got a first draft, you don't know the book you're writing. Yeah. And that's how it is for me. So, you know, I enjoy that, but I enjoy the editing more because that's when you're, you know, buffing and polishing it up like the shoe shine. 
We're running out of time, so I'm going to let you go. But before I do, just two final things. Uh, first of all, what's next for you? You've obviously had a very busy few months, but uh, what, what else are you looking forward to this year? Well, the joy of the Burning Chambers for me has been for the first time in my career, because it's the first in a quartet, I've never written and planned a sequence of books before, mm. um, that I didn't say goodbye to Minu and her family and the goodies and the baddies of the Burning Chambers in the way that I normally do with a novel. So I carried on writing their story. Um, so I'm writing the second in the series at the moment, The City of Tears, um, which has turned out to be much sadder than I was expecting. And it's, It sounds sad. I know, <laughs> and The City of Tears is Amsterdam. And it's mostly set in Amsterdam, but a bit in Paris um, and a little bit in London. Um, I'm adapting one of my own books for a stage uh, oh, production, uh, Taxidermist Daughter. I'm also working um, on a screenplay of one of my other books. Um, and of course, within all of that, celebrating the amazing women on the Women's Prize for Fiction shortlist and long list and winner um, yeah. and all of those things. Because for me, what I do as a writer and what I do as a reader are two sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, I think our job in this world, if you, if you could put it like that, is to make it, to listen to other people. Mm. And I think as a writer writing women's stories, that's what I do on the page for myself. But within the Women's Prize, I want to celebrate and listen to other women. Um, and so for me, my reading over the summer is, is dictated by the Women's Prize for Fiction. Um, so I'm trying to juggle all of that at the moment. And then once the prize, um, you know, we have our 2019 winner, I will then go back into the deep dive of the City of Tears and I will be delivering that to my publisher at the end of August. And then I shall go and lie down. <laughs> and my final question, and to be honest, you sort of answered this along the way, but I ask everyone this question, so I'm going to ask it to you anyway, which is that if you, if you could uh, give any aspiring authors listening or even your younger self uh, uh, one piece of advice, what would it be? One piece of advice. Ah. <laughs> um, I, I th I'm going to give you two. I'm going to, okay, one as a two, writer. That's, that's one as a writer. You can't be a writer if you don't write, and you can't be a writer if you don't read. So a lot of people of all ages, but a, a lot of young women come to me and ask for advice, and they say they want to be a writer. And I say, what are you writing? And they say, well, I haven't really got time. Now, the truth is, what you need to do with writing is do it every single day so that when you do have the time to write the novel you've always dreamed of, you're ready. Mm. It's like getting fit. You don't just decide to run a marathon. You train and you go out and you do all of those things so that when mm. the time comes to run all those miles, you're ready to do it. Muscle memory for writing is the same. So keep a paper and pad mm. by the kettle. While you're waiting for the kettle to boil, describe what the steam looks like. Mm. Every little bit of writing makes it possible for you to be a writer. So it's that, just do tiny bits of writing all the time so that when the time comes for you to write your novel, you're ready. In real life, um, as it were, you do learn as much from the things that fail as the things that succeed. Mm. And there is this wonderful uh, quote from Picasso, which I will not do in Spanish, um, but he was asked very near the end of his life when he was one of the world's acknowledged greatest living painters, why he still w went to his studio every day. And he said, when inspiration arrives, I want it to find me working. And so the bad days of writing are just as important as the good days. 
That's fantastic advice and a wonderful note to end on. Kate, thank you so much. You've been such a joy to speak to. It's been so wonderful. And to everyone listening, The Burning Chambers is out now in paperback. And the winner of the 2019 Women's Prize for Fiction will be announced on Wednesday, the 5th of June. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania. And more importantly, if you enjoyed it, please do rate or or review the show. It really helps other people find it and its position in the charts. And if you fancy coming along to watch me interview brilliant authors live, I also host a monthly live Sunday salon at the Ned Hotel in London. For more information, visit alicezaniajarvis.com forward slash Sunday salon. (laughs) 